0: For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, this beautiful day. Thank you again for the time that we have together in your presence and with each other. Thank you for the friendships in this room, uh, and thank you for your friendship with us, that you have come to dwell and abide with us. I pray that you would do what you promised, that you would be with us this morning in your spirit, um, that you would open our eyes and our, that, um, that the deaf would sing and the blind would see and the lame would leap for joy uh, because we have seen you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, If we haven't met, my name is Nathaniel. I am the RUF campus minister over at Western Washington University. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, It's a campus ministry. Uh, Our senior pastor, Nate Walker, uh, was just leading worship, but he's not preaching this morning, and so if you're visiting, I'm sorry. And, uh, and you should come back and hear him. This is a law of nature that when you visit, you don't get to hear the senior pastor. Um, but they've asked me to preach this morning. Um, before I moved back to Washington to work with RUF at Western, for six years I was the assistant pastor at a church. Uh, and that church, like our church, had a Christian school. And uh, part of the 12th grade curriculum was a Bible class called Apologetics and so being the assistant pastor, they asked me if I would come in for two hours a week and teach that class, which is a lot of fun, because by the time they get to you in 12th grade, they already think that they know everything, um, because they do, and so you can uh, mess with that a little bit. And one of the uh, more gutsy things that I did is, uh, with our headmaster's permission, I ordered a field trip, order, organized a field trip to a Buddhist temple. Uh, Because we're in Hawaii, and like everywhere in the West, but especially in Hawaii, Buddhism was a big deal. And I didn't want our high school students to go off to college and have a Buddhist roommate and be shocked that they were a really decent person. Um, That if they were going to embrace Christianity in distinction to other things, I wanted them to know fully what they were embracing and what they were rejecting. And so we loaded up in a bus and drove over the mountain down into Honolulu to a beautiful, big, white Buddhist ji temple that is from a sect that in English we call Japanese Pure Land Buddhism. And uh, we met up with one of the priests there and uh, he gave us a tour around the grounds and then we met in um, what I guess you would call the sanctuary. And then I just said, please tell us what you want us to know about Buddhism. Uh, And so he... Shared for a while, and the students had a chance to ask questions and interact with what he was teaching. Uh, It was amazingly calm. Outside, all the doors and windows were open, and you could hear the traffic in the freeway and people moving around busily. And inside the temple, uh, everything was quiet and still, and the breezes were blowing through, and everyone was peaceful. Uh, And it turns out that Christianity is actually not the only religion that teaches salvation by grace. That uh, Japanese Pure Land Buddhism is a sect of Buddhism that has a personalized view of Buddha. So they think of himself, they think of him as a personality. They would say, Amada Buddha is infinitely gracious. Uh, And what he's doing is he's working with everyone on their path towards the truth, leading them towards the truth. And so he was even unconcerned that we were all Christians because that's part of the truth too. And Amada Buddha was doing his thing with us and we will all arrive at the end. Uh, I'm not planning on giving up on Christianity, but if I ever do, I'm going to become a Japanese Pure Land Buddhist. (laughs) Because it seems so calm and it connects with the values of our culture, right? Because everything is gracious and there's nothing that's bad, and everyone is going to get there, and every path is a path. Uh, from the Bible's perspective, from John's perspective, the main problem with that is that it's not true. That uh, in our passage this morning, John is talking about the person of Jesus. He's already referred to him as the Word as in the word from God. And then we hear this, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt in Greek uh, is the same word they use to translate the word tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so if you were a Greek person and you read this, you would freak out because the word became flesh and concrete, and that would be very disturbing, and then you would hear that God dwelt among us. But if you were a Hebrew, what you would hear is, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That um, John is tapping into his history, God's history, the history of the people of Israel, and saying, you know that thing that happened in the past, in our story, where God dwelled with us in the tabernacle, that thing? Jesus is that thing. That in the present age, since Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us as a person, also everything that was true about the tabernacle is now true about him. That when Jesus came and dwelt among us, part of what he was doing was tabernacling. Uh, If you were an Old Testament Israelite and, uh, and you wanted to go meet with God, you did that at the tabernacle. If you were convicted of your sin, your own personal brokenness, and needed to be forgiven and reaccepted into the community and into relationship with God, you would do that at the tabernacle. And if you wanted to interact with and experience the power and majesty of God's glory and to know Him personally and to know His nature and His ways, you would do that at the tabernacle. And all of those things, Jesus Fulfills and takes over and does accept better. And so, from John's perspective, from the Bible's perspective, um, there may be truth in a lot of things, but Jesus is the pathway to God. We're going to take a look at those different aspects of what the tabernacle accomplished in the Old Testament and how uh, we see that in Jesus. In the story of the Old Testament, God calls Abraham and right away begins communicating in various ways that here's the goal. Here's what I'm after. I am going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. I'm going to be your God, and you will be my people, and we will dwell together. Uh, And so you see that story unfolding increasingly with greater depth and information until finally God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, and he brings them to himself in the Exodus at the mountain, and then he gives them chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters of instruction on how to build the tabernacle. Because in the tabernacle, God is going to descend and dwell with his people in their midst. In fact, the book of Numbers gives us a schematic layout for the camp of Israel. So when they're in the wilderness, the tabernacle is in the middle. And on the north side, there were three tribes. And on the south side, there were three tribes. And on the east side, there were three tribes. And on the west side, there were three tribes. And so you have this big encampment, this tent city of perhaps a million people fanned out in all directions and in the center of the camp is the tabernacle they get all the directions uh, on how to build it in exodus and then they build it piece by piece just as the lord said and then here are the last verses of the book of exodus this is how the book ends then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle Of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, if you were an Israelite, you could at any time look over towards the tabernacle and see the cloud inhabiting the tabernacle. And at nighttime, if you were in your tent, you could poke your head out the door and look towards the center of camp, and there was the tabernacle glowing because of the fire of God's presence burning in the tabernacle. God dwelling in the midst of his people. So in uh, John 1, in verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. John uses the word skene, which is how they translated in Greek, tabernacle. But skene is also the word from which later Hebrews delivered the phrase, uh, developed the phrase, the Shekinah glory. So the tabernacle is the thing wherein glo- God's glory Dwells, And then that shining, burning thing inside there, that is the Shekinah glory. And so John is saying, when Jesus takes on flesh and becomes a person, somehow, in a very difficult way to believe, all of that glory, that burning presence, that majesty, that is distilled in bodily form in Jesus. And if you want to know what God's glory looks like, it looks like Jesus. Uh, And not just that, um, before the tabernacle was built, Moses, at one point, um, in in a low point, in desperation, cries out to God and says, I want to see your glory. I want to see your Shekinah glory. And uh, this is the passage in Exodus where God says, okay, uh, but that would kill you, but I'll let you see a little bit of it, and hides Moses in the rock. And places his hand over him and passes by. And then Moses sees just a little bit of God's backside passing away. And even that is enough to turn his hair white and leave his face glowing. So that when he comes down from the mountain, the Israelites don't want to look at him. But while the Lord is passing by, the other thing that he does is he proclaims his name. He, he shouts out loud, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. So we have God's shining glory, but then this name that sort of describes his character and his personality, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Um, To dig down into these words for a second, the word love there in Hebrew is chesed, which is one of these Hebrew words that you just can't translate into English. And if you try very hard, you end up with like long hyphenated strings, like uh, faithful, gracious, loving, kindness. It's kind of this compound idea of God loving, faithfully, continuously, graciously, never giving up on you. And so if you take that word and you translate it into Greek, and then you translate it from Greek into English, you may get a word like grace. That this gracious, faithful, loving kindness is God's grace. So um, the Lord, compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, Hesed, grace, and faithfulness. So the word there for faithfulness means a whole bunch of things. It means faithful. It also can be translated true, uh, which means true in contradiction to not true, but it also means true is in better, like. That might be true, but this is really true. And so you could also translate that faithfulness as truth. And so on our journey from Hebrew to Greek to English, in John chapter 1, we have, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so most commentators think that not only is John referring to the tabernacle, he's referring to the Shekinah glory, the burning presence of God's glory, and he's also referring to this moment in Exodus 33 where God declares his name and his character. And what makes him glorious is uh, not just his power, but his love and his faithfulness, his grace and his truth. That Jesus has revealed all of those things to us. This is why it can say a couple of verses later in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God. Remember, God said that would kill you if you did. But who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So God has this glory. You can't see it. But actually, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen it. This is why Jesus can say at the Last Supper, one of the disciples is like, well, show us the Father. And Jesus is like, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. Um, this is also what um, is, can be dangerous about those um, soft airbrush pictures of beautiful Jesus with the wavy hair and the beard and the little children. Um, that uh, Jesus was gracious and did say, let the children come to me, but he is also the Jesus of the shining glory of God's presence. He's the Jesus of the transfiguration where Peter and John saw him as he really was. He's the Jesus of revelation with uh, the shiny belt and the brass feet and the, the sword and all the that. He is the manifestation of God's glory. What does it mean for Jesus to be the glory? I think that because we are all made in God's image, there is at least a part of us that is constantly seeking out experiences of glory. Glory is that thing that you are bumping up against in those fleeting moments of deep interpersonal connection with your best friend when you finally know that there is someone who looks all the way down inside you and totally gets you. Glory is that thing that keeps you backpacking. Despite the wet and the cold and the expense of the gear and the why am I doing this and the bruises on your hips when you wake up the next morning and crawl out of your tent and look at that vista and the breeze blows through your hair and you just cannot wrap your little human self around this is a little touch of glory. Um, Glory um, if, if you can handle this analogy, is a little bit like that sports victory that you never thought that you would have. Um, so RUF right now has an intern. Nora Harvey is here working with us. Fifteen years ago, I was also an RUF intern, and they assigned me to the University of Nebraska. And having graduated from the University of Washington, I thought that we had school spirit, and I was wrong. Uh, because uh, some students in Nebraska got me into a Cornhusker football game, which is hard to get into. People pass those season tickets down from generation to generation in their families. When a game is happening in Cornhusker Stadium, Cornhusker Stadium is the third largest gathering of people in the state of Nebraska. It's 70,000 people wearing red. Cell phones don't work because there's not enough towers for that many people to make that work. And when the team takes the field... It is so loud, you cannot hear yourself think. And I remember thinking 15 years ago when I first experienced this, one, this is a bizarre amount of enthusiasm for football. And two, I wonder if this is what it will be like at the end of the age when Jesus takes the field and we are all there gathered around. That, that, that all of this is somehow mystically contained in the person of Jesus, in the way that he treats people, in the power that he has, in the restraint that he has, everything about his character. If we want to know God's glory, it's in Jesus. We've got this little quote in the bulletin, In nature we see God as it were like the sun in a picture. In the law as the sun in a cloud. In Christ we see him in his beams. He is the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his person. So Jesus, in his flesh, tabernacled among us, containing God's glory. Uh, Glory is not the only thing that happens in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is also where you go to have your sins forgiven. Um, At the end of Exodus, I read those verses, the tabernacle is set up and the cloud and the fire move into the tabernacle. And then Exodus ends, and then what's the very next verse? Leviticus 1. When you bring an offering from the herd, so on and so forth. Um, a bunch of you ladies just completed a study on Leviticus, um, and I'm very excited about that. You men are going to have to just borrow your wife's notes. Um, Leviticus is one of those books that we love to forget is there because it's just a lot of like the long lobe of the liver and a lot of blood, and I think for most of us, our emotional takeaway from Leviticus is, thank goodness that we are not Old Testament Israelites. Um, And I think there is something true about that, but that cannot be the emotional intent that God had for the Israelites for the 2,000 years before Jesus came. Um... That if you're an Israelite and you're dwelling in the camp and God moves in a couple blocks down the street in the tabernacle and you can see him glowing at night, that's an amazing and wonderful experience and it's also a terrifying experience. Because if you're an Israelite or a human being for that matter and you know anything about yourself, you know that you are not the sort of person that should be that close to that kind of shining glory and there's a reason why that would kill you if you saw it. That if the Israelites are going to have God live in their midst, they're going to have to have some method of which to atone for their sins and to make it okay, to make it survivable, to have God in the midst of their camp. And so I think in the flow of the thought of the Bible, Leviticus answers a felt need. This glowing thing moved into the tabernacle. This is great. Ah, What do we do now? Well, bring an offering from the herd. And offer it at the entrance of the temple. The priests will walk through what to do. They'll sprinkle some blood in the temple. They'll sprinkle some blood on you. And because of that, you'll be okay. You don't have to die. The cow can die for you. I think that I understood communion for the first time when I was in college. And I'd been taking it for a few years. And I understood who the Lord was and so on and so forth. Um, But for me, it was mostly this experience of, Oh, Lord, I'm sorry that you had to die for me again. I'm such a mess up. Um, When I was in college, I did mess up in the kind of way where the pastor brings you into his office to talk about it. Um, I was at Green Lake, which is a church down in Seattle at the time, and our pastor, Michael Kelly, and my campus minister brought me into the office and uh, Michael looks at me at the end of the meeting and he says, I don't think that you get it. I don't know that you have connected your actions with their pain. And I would like you to think about that for a bit. Let's come back in a week and talk about it. And in that moment, I did get it. Uh, desperately so. Desperately so and as the week went on i kind of had this feeling like this is it they've now found out who i really am it is all over they're going to kick me out of the church i'm embarrassed to show up everyone knows what's really inside me but the next sunday i went to church i wasn't even sure i had business taking communion i chatted with one of the elders talked it through he said you should take communion i walked up front just like we do here tore off a piece of bread and my pastor Michael Kelly looked at me and he smiled and he said, Nathaniel this is Christ's body broken for you. And I took a couple steps over and one of our elders, Keith Gobin who's also familiar with the whole situation held out the cups towards me and he smiled and with a twinkle in his eye he said grace and peace from Christ Jesus. And somehow in that moment I couldn't not laugh. Because that is ridiculous for me to still be welcomed and to experience in spite of all that grace and peace from Christ Jesus. That I think for the Israelites, the intended experience of the sacrifices was something like that. That in spite of everything, I can come and offer this thing and be cleansed and know that I am really okay. Like not, I hope I'm okay. I'm okay, okay. I'm welcome to be here. I'm welcome to be here with them. And this glowing presence, it's now a safe proximity for me. That I am welcome in this place. And Jesus came to accomplish that for us that the old testament sacrifices worked because they were checks written upon the account of jesus's sacrifice of himself which we can also now look back to this is part of the reason why i can say in verse 16 from his fullness all this glory we have all received grace upon grace we haven't even received grace we've received grace and grace and grace and grace and grace and grace That Jesus is the place where we meet with God's glory and know what it looks like to be God. Jesus is also the place where he himself offers himself for our sins and we know that we are welcome with him. And we actually become free to be honest about who we really are. Jesus is the place of God's glory. He's the place of forgiveness of sins. And just to round out the picture, in in every way, Jesus is the place where we meet with God. Because in the Old Testament, if you wanted to know about God's glory, you went to the tabernacle. If you needed your sins forgiven, you went to the tabernacle. And really, if you just wanted to meet with God, talk to him, hear his word, you went to the tabernacle. Um, As the story of Israel developed, one of the things that the Lord started saying over and over and over again is all of these things you must do in the place where I dwell. In Deuteronomy it says, "You guys are going to enter the land, and when you do, I will show you the place where I will put my name. That's Jerusalem, and there you shall set up the tabernacle, ultimately the temple, and that's where you go to offer your sacrifices. That's where you go to offer your offerings. That's where you go to separate to celebrate Passover and weeks and uh, the Feast of Booths. That's that's the place where you do all of those things." And so, it became one of the greatest acts of apostasy in the life of Israel to do any of those things anywhere else. So, later on in Israel's history, the kingdom splits north and south, and there's a king in the north named Jeroboam. And, Jerus- and he's his ruling over Israelites, but not all the Israelites And Jerusalem is not in his territory. And he becomes concerned... That it will undermine his power if the Israelites journey down three times a year to Jerusalem and he says, well, I know how to fix that. We'll just set up another temple here and you won't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. You can just do that in Shiloh. And in that moment, Jeroboam becomes the gold standard for what sin and evil look like. Uh, That there were a lot of sins that the kings committed, that the Israelites committed, but from that day forward, constantly in kings, Every single time the book evaluates a king, good or bad, if the king is bad, it says something to the effect of, this is one of them, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he made Israel sin. So God established his presence in one place and it's important to him that his people meet with him, get their sins atoned for, experience his glory in that place specifically. So when Jesus comes and represents God's glory and atones for our sins, where else would you go? Um, we're very fortunate to have uh, several girls who are, do not identify as Christian, who are regularly part of RUF, come to our Bible studies. Um, two of them specifically came because they had friends in RUF and they've been coming regularly to the Bible studies almost all the time for over a year. Uh, One of them grew up Unitarian. One of them just didn't grow up familiar with the Bible stories at all. And they would both now tell you that they really, really like Jesus. Emma said to me, Jesus treats people the way I think people ought to be treated. That she likes everything about him. She is seeing and experiencing God's glory and his character through Jesus. But both of them are still struggling with the fact that uh, they really, really like Jesus, but it just, it's just so hard to say that every other way is not part of the way, and what about all those people that have never heard about Jesus or worship other religions? We've been talking through this for a while. I wish that I had a great answer. Um, a few chapters later in John, in John chapter 6, uh, Jesus is talking about himself being the way, uh, And says rather awkwardly that if you want to know God, the only way to do that is to eat his body and drink his blood. It's super uncomfortable. And so everyone listening to him kind of freaks out. And so rather than explaining that, he just doubles down, changes the words and says, You will not know God unless you gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood. And then it says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, This is fantastic. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what does Peter not say? He does not say, That wasn't awkward at all. I think this is Peter saying, that was unbelievably awkward. That was creepy. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm super uncomfortable. But we have experienced God's glory and character in your person. And having done that, we now have no other option. Where else would we go? Even in our moments of darkness and confusion. That having seen that character... Jesus becomes the place. And this is, this is always Jesus' answer to this question. Well, I am who I am. I am God's glory, which uh, speaks for itself. Um, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that I've figured out now that God loves us and dwells with us and takes care of us. But also, sometimes He really will just leave you in a mess. Uh, you know, we're reformed, and so we believe in God's sovereignty, which really means that God does what he wants. And so as a RUF campus minister, uh, aside from ministering to students and organizing events and uh, working with student leaders and meeting with them, one of the things that I get to do is raise support for our ministry. And uh, so I have prayed from time to time that God would provide for us financially, and I know that the Lord has to provide for it to work, but also I know really I just have a lot of work to do. And there's people that I need to meet with and thank you notes that I need to send and plans that I need to establish. And so we've sort of made it financially thus far, um, but last summer I had these huge plans on how I was going to connect with all these churches and kind of establish our support base. And then Susie got her hand injured and Addie broke her arm and it kind of blew up all my plans. And then um, I worked with ray deck and we kind of created a plan for a matching grant in september which worked really well but then this fall i had all these plans i was going to take a day a week and drive down to seattle and meet with people and i was so busy it just never happened so i'm at a party friday night and john neville says to me hey i hear that you've done a great job at support raising and uh being in the emotional state that i am internally i was like really I literally was like, who said that? Um, And so I kind of explained, like, well, yes, um, RUF really wants us to have, like, three months' worth of resources in the bank, and so, um, you know, we've had some big gifts come in, but then it keeps ticking down every month, and it bumps back up, and so at the moment, we have, like, $20,000 in the account, um, but there's, like, so much work to do, and then across the table... At this moment, Chris Van Hoffwigen says, what did you say? And I said, well, you know, the new target. He's like, no, 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 no!" about, about your account. And I was like, well, yeah, actually 22. We have $22,000 in the account right now. And he says, that's what we prayed for. And I remembered at that moment that last summer, in the midst of all my stress, Chris said, I want you to send me some specific prayer requests because I want to pray for RUF this fall and see what God will do. And I took Chris seriously, and I took about two weeks to think through what what would be really cool but frankly impossible to happen. And so I sent him a bunch of prayer requests, and one of them was financial because at that point we were in a $5,000 deficit, and I was like, well, this could never happen. (laughs) But it would be amazing to end the year with $20,000 in the account. We've ended the year with $20,000 in the account. So in, in spite of my own emotional darkness and lack of trust in God actually dwelling with us and thinking that it was really on my shoulders to figure this thing out, he just kind of provided for us. So what would it be like this Advent season? If in the midst of singing Christmas carols and being very happy that baby Jesus came to earth, what would it be like if we emotionally, spiritually, worshipfully interacted with him as if he was the better tabernacle in which all of the burning presence of God's glory dwells and the forgiveness of all of our sins and the Lord of heaven and earth who is actively taking care of us whether we recognize it or not. Let's worship that, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you um, for being faithful to us all the days of our lives and gracious to us in every way. Thank you for these words. Thank you that you have come to dwell among us. We are thankful and we look forward to coming back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.